today from the global lane, beyond spy balloons, Chinese agents hunt down dissidents from stations inside the U.S. and around the world. Dale Hurd's shocking report. It's outrageous, and, and as you know, China would never allow this in their own country. Political and cultural terrorism, the far left's plan to foment a second American civil war. I believe it's very much avoidable at this point, but the left is pushing for it. If we want to defend our freedoms, we all have to stand up. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders announces universal school choice in Arkansas. Will blue states soon follow her lead? More Democrats are beginning to support the idea. Sort of the let a thousand flowers bloom approach makes a lot of sense. Is the U.S. military focused on fighting to defend the country from its enemies? War for same-sex marriage and a woke agenda? With a little girl raised by two moms. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Beyond the spy balloons, a network of Chinese agents is at work right here in America. Their mission is to hunt down, intimidate, and even kill pro-democracy dissidents. In cities across the U.S. and the world, these agents operate out of so-called police stations. Dale Hurd brings us the details. Above this noodle shop in New York's Chinatown, agents of the Chinese Communist government operated an overseas police station for years. There are more than 100 of them worldwide. They don't usually look like a police station. They may only be back rooms, but they're staffed by Chinese government officials. The police stations, along with so-called aid stations across the U.S., are used by the Chinese government to harass and threaten pro-democracy Chinese immigrants to stop speaking out against the regime and go back to China, even kidnapping them if necessary. One of their targets is Li Jianji, a pro-democracy activist who was tortured repeatedly in Chinese psychiatric hospitals before he was able to flee to the U.S. where the persecution has continued. Xi, who does not speak English, told us Chinese government hitmen in the Los Angeles area have tried to kill him three times, twice with a car and once by stabbing him in the neck, calling him a traitor as they fled the scene. Chinese government agents and supporters regularly film and disrupt pro-democracy demonstrations in American cities. They warn activists they're being reported to Beijing and that their family back home will be arrested. A recent New York Times report made it look like the FBI is on the case, highlighting a raid on that Chinese police station in New York's Chinatown. But that raid happened last fall, and the FBI didn't shut it down, it only gathered evidence. When we asked the FBI if it's closed any of the Chinese police stations across the U.S. or brought charges against anyone, it declined comment, saying that FBI Director Christopher Wray's testimony to the Senate Homeland Security Committee last year would serve as the agency's statement on the matter. We are aware of the existence of these stations. I had to be careful about discussing our specific investigative work, but suffice to say, I can tell you from an FBI director perspective, I'm deeply concerned about this, uh, and I'm not going to just let it lie. Chinese democracy activist Jing Yu Wang is a U.S. resident now living under police protection in the Netherlands, where Chinese agents have repeatedly harassed and threatened him. He was in prison for two months in Dubai at the request of Chinese authorities and has had to fight off a knife attack in the Netherlands. How can I help you? Why you call me? This is a phone call he recorded from the Chinese embassy in Norway, saying he's been reported to police as having a bomb. 
The Chinese government has imprisoned his parents to force him to return to China. They asked me to go to Rotterdam, Chinese overseas police station for surrender. And they asked me to go back to China. They asked me thinking about my parents from 2022 February to 2022, I think, uh, April. Almost every day they will make uh, over 100 phone calls to me. Every day, you know, like uh, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., keep making phone calls to me. The CCP is attempting to impose its control in every country around the world. China expert Bradley Thayer believes one reason for the lack of action by the Justice Department has been a failure by American leaders to face up to the China threat. The lack of responsiveness regarding the China threat is something which has plagued us for decades. This uh, lack of concern uh, which plagues uh, the American elite, uh, and that would be universities, media, so many of our political leaders, Wall Street, Silicon Valley. Li Jianji wishes the FBI would do something. He told us he reported the attempts against his life to the FBI, but it never responded. Dale Hurd joins us with more. Dale, we heard FBI Director Chris Ray say he's deeply concerned about these Chinese police stations and he won't let it lie, yet few have been shut down. So is the FBI monitoring them for surveillance to gather intelligence on Chinese activities in the U.S.? What's the reason for allowing them to remain active? Well, I hope the reason is not because most of these pro-Chinese, uh, these pro-democracy activists are Republicans and Trump supporters. Um, uh, the best reason is, as you mentioned, uh, it could be a counterintelligence goldmine, but I doubt it because you basically have mobster-like activity here where they're calling and intimidating people and so forth. Uh, the most likely reason simply is they just don't care enough about the Chinese threat. And we go over that in the story. That's been a recurring problem in, in our government is our leaders just not taking the Chinese threat seriously. Well, let's talk beyond the FBI. Why hasn't the U.S. Congress done something about this? And is there any hope with Republicans now in charge of the House and the newly formed bicameral Congressional Executive Commission on China going to make a difference? Yeah, I hope so. You, they're about to start these hearings on the weaponization of the U.S. government. And, uh, you know, they might bring up the fact, you know, you're spending all this time spying on Americans. You, you might you know, take care of this Chinese threat while you're at it. But what I've seen so far is Congress expects the Justice Department to do something about it, and they're just simply not. Well, it's interesting. I mean, we had this balloon and everybody's attention was on this spy balloon. And I'm not saying it wasn't serious, but we've got Chinese agents here in this country that are operating against their own citizens and also Americans. It's outrageous. And, and as you know, China would never allow this in their own country. And so this, just like the balloon was a symbol of Chinese arrogance, frankly, um, these agents, these police stations are an example of of just what China thinks it can get away with in other countries. And it's not only a problem right here in the U.S., but also around the world. So where else, Dale? Virtually any developed nation of any substance has Chinese overseas police stations, and very few have done anything about it. Ireland has, uh, the Netherlands uh, has acted against one, but some countries have cooperated with the Chinese. Italy, it's, it's a scandal, and South Africa. So they're virtually everywhere, and they've frankly been very successful at their job, which ultimately is harassing dissidents into returning to China, threatening them and getting them to go back. Well, a lot of businesses, a lot of these countries, and I know in Africa, getting money from the Chinese 
That may be why they're looking the other way. Yeah. Okay, Dale Hurd. Thank you, Dale, for this compelling and insightful report. We appreciate it. Thank you, Gary. A raucous response from Republicans this week when President Biden delivered his State of the Union address. The president put forth many proposals, including federal codification of abortion and an assault weapons ban. Republicans jeered at the president during the speech and shouted, liar. Well, here to provide some insights on the Biden administration's political and cultural agenda is Robert Spencer, director of Jihad Watch. He's author of the new book, Sumter Gambit, How the Left is Trying to Foment a Civil War. Robert, it's always good to talk with you. So most Americans know you as a terrorism expert. But in this case, with your new book, you focus on political and cultural terrorism. So tell us what you thought of the president's speech last night, the raucous reaction from some Republicans. What's really going on here? Well, you know, a lot is being made of the reaction of the Republicans as if it's some kind of unprecedented rudeness to the president. But it has to be understood in the context of the fact that this president is the very first in American history to declare that his principal opponent and his legitimate opposition and essentially half the electorate are outside the bounds of acceptable political discourse and are essentially traitors to the republic. And he extended that in the State of the Union address, repeating his nonsense about the January 6th so-called insurrection, the threat to our democracy that it supposedly constituted, and pushing for his radical far-left agenda that would encroach further upon the freedoms of Americans. And so in light of all that, I think the Republican response was actually quite muted and far less hostile than Nancy Pelosi, say, tearing up the president's speech a few years ago. Yeah, he, he wants unity. He's talking about unity and working together. But I remember that speech last September, very divisive. American colleges, universities, corporations are now spending millions of dollars on equity programs. Equity directors and executives are now commonplace in American society. So is this really class warfare, Robert? What is this push for equity and not equality, I might add? What is it all about? It's very much class warfare, Gary. It's all about trying to sow division between various groups in American society and ultimately making everyone a dependent of the all-powerful federal government. And the, the colleges and universities with their diversity, equity, and inclusion programs are working hand-in-hand with the government, which is quintessentially fascist, so that you have in a fascist state you have the government working with private entities in order to enforce an ideological lockstep, and that's exactly what we're seeing here. The idea is to shame Americans who have succeeded and to enforce what is frankly also a Marxist agenda of economic leveling by the confiscation of wealth, which is essentially theft, from the wealthy and its forcible redistribution to those who are not wealthy, not necessarily, and actually most in, in, in most cases, not because they have been uh, the victims of racism or something of that kind, but simply because they haven't worked and are already accustomed to the idea of being dependent upon the government. And of course, we're seeing the media play into that as well. And I know in your book, you contend that the left has gradually implemented a strategy over the years to transform the nation. This isn't a recent development here, is it? Tell us more and why now? 
This all began really in the 1960s. You can actually even trace it uh, to far before that. But in the 1960s, it really picked up speed with the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movement that uh, was based on the idea of, in the on the left, a long march through the institutions. That first there were sit-ins and takeovers of college and university administrative offices, but that strategy failed and was replaced by the idea on the left to just take over pretty much every institution in American society. And because most people have not been even aware of this as a conscious strategy, although it's been around since the 1960s, they've had remarkable success. So that now the left can does indeed control the entertainment industry, the education uh, apparatus, the government, the media. It's all one point of view and only one point of view that is acceptable. If you step out of this lockstep, then you are vilified, smeared, marginalized, demonized, and so on. But it is increasingly now, as all these groups begin to try to tighten their grip and crush dissent, that Americans are waking up to it and realizing that we have to fight back now, not in uh, illegal or violent means, but through all peaceful avenues in order to protect our freedoms, which are gravely in peril. Quickly, Robert, do you believe civil war is unavoidable or can we reverse course? I believe it's very much avoidable at this point, but the left is pushing for it. For example, with the drag queens and primary schools and things like that, the idea is we either accept it, sit back and go along, in which case we've lost our children and lose our culture, or we fight back in a way that they can say, see, these people are terrorists, as the FBI classified angry parents at school board meetings protesting against all this madness as domestic terrorists. And so we have to continue to resist in peaceful means continue to speak out and remember that every one of us has to become an activist now. Nobody is going to do this for us. If we want to defend our freedoms, we all have to stand up. Okay, the book is Sumter Gambit, How the Left is Trying to Foment a Civil War. Robert Spencer, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Robert. Thank you. Likewise, Gary. Thank you. In his State of the Union address, President Biden said education must be an affordable ticket for the middle class. Although the president opposes for-profit charter schools and vouchers for low-to-middle-income Americans, school choice programs are expanding in states across the nation. We'll hear with more as Young Voices commentator Elizabeth Matthews. She's a former professor and university administrator. Elizabeth, uh, you contend that lower-income Americans, particularly those in minority communities, overwhelmingly support the idea of school choice and vouchers. So why do the president and Democrats oppose the idea? Um, you know, I think that more Democrats are beginning to support the idea, and I do think that that is the way of the future. Um, I think in, in communities where folks have been trying to get out of failing schools for generations now, like in my own city of Philadelphia, where there are many students on the wait lists for um, uh, charter as well as private and parochial schools. Um, our Democratic governor, Josh Shapiro, did support school choice um, in his in his platform when he was running. So I do think that's that's the coming wave of the future, as more than, I believe, two-thirds of Democrats do now support school choice. How about vouchers? Are they on board with that? I think there's still opposition. I think there's opposition to different ways of doing it, but I think that 
um, you know, tax tax credits, um, vouchers. These are all potential ways to do it. And I think some have more bipartisan support than others, for sure. Well, with all the violence in many schools today, I mean, we even had a six-year-old shoot a teacher here in Virginia. Let that one sink in a bit. A six-year-old. Parents are now opting for private schools, but with household costs rising due to inflation, many find it unaffordable, Elizabeth. So what difference would vouchers make? Would it bring harm to the public educational system and cause a layoff of teachers? So I think that um, one of the issues we have to kind of look at it at a, at a broader view, um, vouchers would give individual families part of the funds that are spent on public education already in many of the school districts where folks are, are not pleased with the product that they're receiving in many cases, um, vouchers would give families a portion of what we're spending per student, which is pretty high in a lot of those cities, to spend on educational options of their own choice. So whether that means um, supports for homeschooling or whether that means parochial school or whether it means part of a private school um, tuition that can be raised in the, the rest through scholarships or in some other way, it would just give families that option. And I think that, you know, sort of the let a thousand flowers bloom approach makes a lot of sense. Um, teachers might not be as needed in certain spaces, but those schools have been suffering disinvestment as well as misinvestment for so long that I think there would be other opportunities for teachers. Um, I noticed that uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders mentioned that her plan for education, which I haven't had a chance to, to look at, I believe it came out today, but it would pay teachers more as well. So I think that there's a lot of options moving forward that would um, help everybody. Look, it's tough being a teacher today with all the violence and everything going on in the schools. I mean, our hat's off to them, right? Uh, at the end of this month, the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to hear arguments on the president's student loan debt forgiveness plan. So what do you expect is going to happen? What are you hearing about that? How important is that to students? Uh, do you think the court's going to go against it? Thank you so much. Um, that's a great question. You know, I can't really predict exactly. It's a it's a really complex issue. But what I would say is that it's super important that we reform the higher ed uh, sector where I worked for so long. Costs have skyrocketed and students truly cannot afford the, the education. And we're also in a knowledge economy now where these degrees are um, the prerequisite for a lot of good jobs. And I think that fixing both of those things, both getting costs down and making the sector more competitive, as well as um, you know, making sure that there are options for employment that don't require college degrees are both super important going forward. Yeah, a lot of these uh, trade, skill, uh, trade schools may be the way to go for a lot of kids. Okay, Young Voices commentator Elizabeth Matthews. Thank you, Elizabeth, for setting us straight today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on. No wonder the Pentagon hesitated to shoot down that Chinese spy balloon. It was probably too busy scheduling the next equity and gender training session for American service members. Seriously, folks, why are you surprised? Weakness is a consequence of a woke U.S. military. Here's one example. It's a shortened clip from a recent U.S. Army recruitment video. It reveals a lot about the U.S. military's shocking transformation. It begins in California with a little girl raised by two moms. I also marched for equality. I like to think I've been defending freedom from an early age. When I was six years old, one of my moms had an accident that left her paralyzed, but she tapped into my family's pride to get back on her feet. 
eventually standing at the altar to marry my other mom. And after meeting with an army recruiter, I found it. A way to prove my inner strength. I'm U.S. Army Corporal Emma Malone Lord, and I answered my calling. Folks, is this the military's calling? Animated recruitment videos promoting lesbianism and same-sex marriage? In all fairness, this is only the most recent of many U.S. Army recruitment videos, but truly it appears the Pentagon is more concerned about advancing woke ideas, like what pronouns someone is using, rather than recruiting tough, masculine men to defend our nation. Now compare that recruitment clip to this one from China's People's Liberation Army. Remember, this is the same army that just sent that spy balloon unhindered over its sensitive U.S. military bases. Quite the contrast. No wonder U.S. recruitment hit its lowest level since the draft ended in 1973. It was down about 25% for the fiscal year 2022. Many in our culture want young men to become kinder, gentler, and more feminine. But that doesn't work for the military. Most 18 to 20-year-old men would be more likely to sign up if the Army placed greater emphasis on training and equipping troops to overcome the nation's enemies rather than teaching them to embrace their preferred pronouns and transgenderism. Folks, it's time the Pentagon stopped this nonsense. From our nation's origins in 1789 until 1947, the Defense Department was called the War Department, and for good reason. Its main task is to defend this nation and win wars, period. Our founding fathers never intended our military leaders to be social engineers. So let's get back to advancing the idea of warriors wanted and army strong before it's too late. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.